Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleiman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Federal spending on hurricane disaster relief has risen dramatically since Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans in 2005. Federal agencies have paid out over $200 billion for coastal recovery since. And more recently, Texas Governor Greg Abbott projected that recovery from Hurricane Harvey could total $150 billion or more. As spending rises, the need to ensure that coastal towns and cities are more resilient to future repeat disasters has come to the forefront. And with much of the nation's oil refining and chemical industry located in low-lying coastal areas, the challenge includes fortifying energy infrastructure and protecting communities from toxic hazards. Here to talk about the process government uses to select and fund recovery projects and to look at how coastal areas can be made more resilient are Ellen Nysis and Billy Fleming, urban policy experts at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Design. Ellen and Billy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Thanks. Ellen Nysis is executive director of Penn Praxis, the Center for Applied Research and Planning at the University of Pennsylvania School of Design. Her recent work is focused on developing solutions to rebuild, protect, and improve cities hit by Hurricane Sandy. Billy Fleming is research coordinator for the Ian L. McHarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Design, where his research focuses on climate adaptation planning along the U.S. coast. During the Obama administration, he worked on urban policy development on the White House Domestic Policy Council. So, Ellen, I thought we could start with you. You've done a lot of work post-Sandy on recovery on the Atlantic coast in the New York, New Jersey area. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing, specifically the projects and the goals of those projects related to resilience. Um, sure. Probably the most well-known of the projects I worked on um, is Hunts Point Lifelines, which is one of the uh, the award-winning projects in the Rebuild by Design competition. Specifically, we looked at um, where's the intersection of great regional importance, um, opportunity, and urgency. And so the food hub for 22 million people, um, not just New York City, but the whole surrounding area, is one where, uh, you know, there's obviously huge importance. And it's also the poorest congressional district in the country. Um, It's got more living wage jobs uh, for people without college education than almost any other part of New York City. Uh, and it's um, protectable. It's 8 to 10 foot elevation. It's not a long fetch uh, direct hit location. So it's a place where there's moderate risk and you can you can make the changes at reasonable cost to protect the huge amount of economy that's in the floodplain there. Um, what we tried to do was show uh, that there are community-based responses to the climate adaptation challenge that you can bring together industry and community and improve ecology, all at the same time that you're, uh, you know, securing kind of the basic infrastructure of the city, the sewage treatment plants, the power plants, uh, and uh, also flood protecting the area. It's a lot of systems thinking, um, trying to think of what is not just the kind of coastal edge solution, but how do you think about all of those different systems working together and evolving in a future direction that's much better than what they are now. So 
moving away from just the concept of rebuilding or, or hardening sites uh, toward thinking about how they evolve in a direction that really supports the future of the region. But that's really the big issue. I mean, these, these natural disasters are happening with you know, increasing frequency and ferocity. How does funding dictate how much actually gets done? Yeah. Well, I think the tricky thing is that a lot of the funds go towards rebuilding. Um, so wherever there was devastation, um, you, you think about initially building back. Um, how do you restore as much function as you possibly can for as many people as you possibly can? You're thinking a lot about equity, um, but you're not really thinking about resilience, and it's hard to in that moment. I would, I would argue that the, those moments of widespread devastation are not the best times to be thinking about what is the systems challenge? What's the way that we can move beyond just uh, kind of the, the, the management of this disaster towards thinking really about hazard mitigation or even huge improvements to the quality of, of life and uh, resilience and economic development all in one uh, package? So, you know, that in, I think at Hunt's point, for example, the we discovered that there's much higher likelihood of loss of power than there is of flooding there um, in any given year. And we also noticed that there's the, the markets are tremendously underpowered. So half of all the food sits in refrigerated trucks with the diesel engines running just to keep them cold because there's not enough energy flowing to these old buildings and old infrastructure. Um, and that adds to the asthma problem in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, we also notice that, you know, because 95% of the power that's used in that one square mile area is used for refrigeration, you could think about a new kind of uh, power plant there that is taking waste heat and converting it into chilled water. And you, if you did that, you would save $50 million a year on the energy tabs of all of the businesses there. And so even though there's some upfront cost to moving to a new form of shared energy infrastructure, um, you would create this huge dividend that all of the businesses could then put into resilience measures. But funding doesn't like these comprehensive, you know, the, the, the way that funding works. Anything that's comprehensive, although we think it's a much better idea, that's much harder for government to think about, to pull off, uh, to bring together different sources of money and to have many agencies collaborate on the implementation of projects. So we get a lot of monofunctional, uh, you know, and kind of limited solutions when what we really need is to start thinking about different scales and scopes of, of problem solving to look at cheaper ways uh, to solve problems or ways that have a lot more benefits. Billy, you've done a lot of work, uh, you know, on, on various coastal areas in the United States. Is is what Ellen is saying here in terms of things focus on a specific project but not a larger picture? Is this something that's true across the country that you've seen? Absolutely. I mean, the designer in me is like cheering Ellen on, and the policy advisor is reaching for like some ibuprofen or Advil. Because <laughs> uh, if you think about the constellation of institutions or you know government agencies that are tasked with overseeing, you know, any one of these projects, you know, it can get as high as 16, 17, 18 different federal agencies or sub-agencies per project or per coastline. Um, And the one that ultimately has the most power there outside of these periods of disaster is the Army Corps. 
Um, and you would hope they'd be the vehicle for delivering some of these projects, some of these bigger systemic changes that Ellen's talking about. But in reality, they, for a lot of reasons, many of which aren't their own fault, uh, aren't really equipped to do that. Uh, the most recent things that have sort of hindered the Army Corps from being able to be that proactive vehicle for climate change adaptation along the coast uh, are a couple of reforms, if that's the right word, that began in the mid-2000s uh, in the Bush II administration and continued on in the Obama administration, uh, one of which they call the 3 by 3 by 3 reform, which uh, stipulates that any project that comes before them has to be completed for $3 million or less, be able to be completed in three years or less, and it used to be that they had to be three inches thick or less when they printed out the report for them. Now it's three megabytes or less in the file size. Are you serious? I'm serious. Uh, they know it's a huge problem, um, but it's one of those things that's out of their outside their control. Uh, they also had a cap placed on the number of projects they can take on per year. Um, so they used to just sort of be one of the big vehicles for port barrel spending to come through. And it had its own set of problems, but it meant that they did a lot more work or they built a lot more things. Whether those things were good or not is like an open question. Um, but by capping those and putting these three by three by three reforms in place, we've really taken away their ability to be anything like a proactive force on, you know, the suite of issues that Ellen just outlined for us. Let's take a step back if we can on that issue right there for just a moment. You you talked about these very specific criteria for projects that the Army Corps has has to look into. Um, who made these rules and why? Ellen? Um, Backing up from three by three by three, which I think Billy is is more the expert. If you talk to people in Army Corps, they would really like for people like us to be advocating to Congress mm-hmm. to change the mandates that they have to work under. So um, they, you know, they they're not allowed to silver and gold plate things. So anytime something moves beyond just uh, performing its objective as flood control to do something else, like say put a bike path on top of that flood control. If it costs even a tiny bit more than the monofunctional thing, it's considered gold-plated and they're not allowed to do that. So if you were able to – if we're able to convince people in Congress uh, or on the executive side that this really doesn't make sense – um, that we what we desperately want to do is in times when there are no storms to be looking for the places where, you know, there are really smart and cheap upstream downstream strategies that, that kind of don't just look at solving a problem within the boundaries of a jurisdiction, but say, if we can look across at the, the whole watershed, say, um, there are better places to solve the flooding problem that are cheaper um, and or you can build giant walls and levees way downstream where it's expensive and you cut the towns off from the, the, the rivers that they were founded on. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of things that the Army Corps is not allowed to do mm-hmm. to solve problems in more strategic ways. And so and, and no one is more frustrated with their limitations than they are. Um, but if we kind of think of our goal is redesigning the problems – um, that government attends to and finding ways that more things can be built, not just by government as giant mega projects or these micro projects that Billy was talking about, um, neither of which is ideal, but where each jurisdiction can participate in the construction of its own protection economically, where you can have public-private partnerships, where communities can be involved in 
the design of, you know, something that's not just this big piece of dumb infrastructure, but it actually carries the aspirations of the community in the future. Um, so, again, that's something that we try to bake into the Hans Point Lifelines project. It's something um, that we proposed uh, to the Regional Plan Association recently as part of their fourth regional plan to start looking at some of these um, larger scopes and scales of problem solving. If we could just find a way to have a few, they will induce a lot of ibuprofen uh, taking, um, but uh, but if we could have a few examples where you're actually able to pull it off, um, maybe through special authorities that come together to, to pull something big off, then all of a sudden it becomes more credible as, yes, we can see that this is harder, but it's so much more worth it. Um, and there is a meaningful way for private uh, entities to plug in and pay for some of it. It's not all just a government lift because we know that there's too many miles of coastline and not enough government money in the world uh, to, or at least in the current uh, thinking about how government money is to be spent to, to solve the problem through government alone. Bill, I want to ask you, uh, going on that same topic for just a moment, looking at the actual trends in spending for recovery and and rebuilding, Um, uh, just some some data I I found before this podcast, Uh, Hurricane Ivan in 2004, the recovery bill was $27 billion. The United States government paid about $4 billion of that, about 15%. Katrina, Sandy have been much, much uh, more expensive in terms of recovery, and the government has picked up much more of those bills. In Katrina, uh, picked up about $115 billion, or 72% of the total. Sandy, $56 billion, that's 80% of the total. Why is the government getting more involved? And again, this may be a, a very naive question, but again, looking at the repetitive nature of these disasters, why is at some level there's this resistance to thinking in the the longer term. Well, I think Ellen sort of alluded to this point earlier. Uh, Part of it is that we've induced a lot of these people into living in highly vulnerable places, right? So the legacy infrastructure that was built by the Corps and by others, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, opened up a lot of new land for development. Uh, Nowhere is that more clear than New Orleans and the suburbs around it that were devastated by Katrina. Uh, And I think there was probably uh, some political pressure and some moral compulsion to go in and help out places where we've sort of steered people through either government or market forces uh, to live in places that were bound to be wiped out by a storm like that. Um, Part of it is also, you know, Ivan is much closer in the timeline than either uh, Katrina or Sandy, but a lot of the other storms that they get compared to, the damage total or the total paid by government often isn't adjusted for inflation. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Sandy, Harvey, uh, Katrina, they're they're huge. They're they're going to be in the top three of storms that ever hit, you know, the U.S. in general. But there are lots of other storms that get put into that bucket because they've hit, you know, more, much more recently and have hit much more mature and valuable cities and economies. Um, we step in oftentimes because there is this, after a disaster, because there is this desire and in many ways a need uh, to project stability or strength in these places because so much of their local economy is dependent on either tourism or a much more local or regional workforce than like in New York. So New Orleans uh, without getting people back into the city and projecting that you know image of strength and resilience, it's hard to imagine that city getting to the point that it is now. It's not in a great position, um, but there was serious talk about sort of shuttering huge swaths of New Orleans after Katrina. Mm-hmm. So we've had three major hurricanes in the last six weeks or so. 
um, what do we see happening in and around Houston, um, uh, in Florida, particularly the Gulf Coast, uh, in Puerto Rico? Do we see uh, any kind of see the old patterns repeating, or can we expect something new? I think the likeliest outcome is that we see old patterns repeated. Uh, if you look at Houston and the sort of larger Southeast Texas area, um, you know, they were hit by Ivan, obviously, but also uh, Rita um, and Ike in 08 and 09. Uh, it's a place that's very familiar with disaster and as a result has a large reservoir of ideas for what to do to help prepare the city for uh, future disasters. The likeliest outcome, I think, is that we put as many people back in place as are you know eager to go back, and we build some uh, useful but probably not all-encompassing surge protection. The thing that gets tossed around the most in Houston is something called the Ike Dyke, which is about a 50-mile-long coastal spine comprised of seawalls and reinforced dunes and a few other softer features to sort of buttress it. Wouldn't have done anything for Harvey, right? It's a surge barrier. It's not going to deal with uh, torrential rainfall in a huge, sprawling city like Houston, um, but that's to me, seems like the likeliest thing to happen is we put a lot of people back and we build a wall like that. Uh, Puerto Rico, I have no idea what will happen because the devastation there is so utter and complete. And politically, the island and its people are treated like second-class citizens, even though they're Americans. So it's hard for me to imagine uh, a particularly aggressive uh, rebuilding strategy on the island, um, even just in terms of getting people back. In Houston specifically, there's a lot of energy infrastructure. Uh, petrochemical industry on the coast that's been flooded. Uh, there, obviously, there were airborne pollutants that were released. Some of those related to standard shutdown processes of the the plants, but some of it was an addition. Fourteen Superfund sites. Um, um, so the energy infrastructure is a problem in and of itself. Is there separate thinking related to how that will be handled and future disasters, potential disasters around that infrastructure avoided? Ellen? Um, I think people are thinking about it, but I don't know that it's being solved. Um, you know, I, I, part of the, the sort of money equation of things is that we say it costs four or five times as much to rebuild things as it would to do the preventive uh, investment in the first place. But the money's only available after the disaster has happened. So we're going to keep blowing a lot of money. Um, on things that probably aren't the right things to... We're we're not buying hazard mitigation or safety. We're just buying, um, you know, a sort of hopefully a kind of equitable, you know, support net to people who are in need. But that's really, really different from doing anything constructive for the future. So I think I've... um, you know, I've, I've definitely heard about the petrochemical industry just being it's impossible to move. Everyone knows it's in the wrong place. But unlike, uh, you know, some clean power plant types um, where you can think about siting them um, above the flood line in secure places, no one wants to move that kind of tank farm infrastructure anywhere because you'll be leaving the contaminated sites below behind. They'll f- continue to flood and you'll just make a new place dirty. Um, so those, those legacy sites, uh, I don't think anyone's actually talking about moving them um, or even hardening them. But I do think, you know, there's, there's a lot of conversation about, um, you know, other kinds of power plants. There's hardly no conversation about things like 
um, you know, we learned in the Arctic vortex, is that what mm-hmm. that was called? Um, that uh, the technology for storing power um, from solar or other means in big batteries, that, that that is super vulnerable to low temperatures. And no one thought of that before. Um, you know, so there are, there's also selection bias problems where we, we're, we're always over-attending to the, whatever the last storm was uh, and not really thinking about the probabilities of the next generation of, of either uh, storms or of technologies and, and what will strike them down. Um, so I think trying to, to separate the, um, the kind of planning and thinking we do f- to, to divorce it from just uh, the, the recovery efforts um, and make it a whole thing of its own is probably the, the only way that you'll move towards actually designing for safety and lower, more high impact, lower investments with much more impact. One of the issues that, that is, has come up as well is, is how you can actually rebuild to make places more economically viable, to create new economic opportunity going forward. Could you tell us a little bit about that from your experience? Sure. I, I, I mean, I think that the, um, if you can find places that are sort of in the, the sweet spot of um, they are not too vulnerable to be protected at reasonable cost, um, and if they were uh, all of a sudden, very well suited to you know you've you've solved a lot of problems in terms of the energy uh, to the site, the transportation problems, uh, the water management, um, you know ecological buffering, and you you choose them really well, so they're on transportation lines, and you upgrade them uh, you know in a holistic fashion. All of a sudden, you've created you know tremendous sites for opportunity because. Those places are not currently, uh, you know, on anyone's map of places that they should be investing in. Mm-hmm. So while we may have to move out of some areas, we can be designing the receiving sites before the storm hits that wipes out all the assets in the floodplain. And we can be starting to think about how you uh, support the migration of assets to those better places um, and and the people, um, you know, have a long-term conversation about this is what it's going to be like here over the next 20 years. It's going to get progressively worse. Everybody can who, who has the assets to move out will move out. The people who don't will be left behind. That cycle of, in, of disinvestment will lead to worse and worse outcomes. So how do we think about a strategy for where to move to? Uh, what community assets are we trying to keep together? Uh, you know, how do we think about that problem and facilitate the, you know, way of thinking and talking about that. Billy, I wanted to ask you regarding the the actual money itself. Who is making the decisions? We talked about the fact that the Army Corps of Engineers is is the, the, you know, the agency that actually can do something about this. But who's making those decisions? How political are those decisions? Yeah, I mean, every funding decision related to either disaster recovery or pre-covery stuff uh, is going to come through congressional authority, right? So, after a disaster, there's going to be an immediate appropriation that comes through Congress, and then there'll be supplementals that go on for as much as 18 months after that. Uh, before those all become line items in a budget uh, or a CR, continuing resolution, because that's what we've passed for you know the last eight nine years. Um, which agency oversees the most amount of that money also depends on whether we're talking pre or post uh, disaster. 
in both cases, FEMA is going to is going to shoulder the bulk of that. Um, they're going to take after a disaster as much as like 80 percent of the funding uh, or they're going to put in as, as much as 80 percent of the funding. Um, after a disaster, HUD also is a big player uh, through their community development block grant funds. Uh, they also tend to be a, a, a fairly big vehicle for Congress to put money into uh, for disaster recovery purposes. And that began with Katrina. That was the first big uh, HUD-driven appropriation uh, and probably gets back to your question earlier about why we've started spending so much more. Uh, it's because we opened the door with HUD and have sort of kept it open. Um, and then there's a constellation of other you know, agent, sub-agencies that, that play a part. The SBA usually does uh, either zero or low-interest loans. Um, there, there's, I think there's 17 or 18 that have in the last 15 years or so put some money up after disaster. Um, to, to Ellen's point, I think about how we think about managing the inevitable you know, migration of people out of some of these places after disaster. It's going to happen whether we plan it or not. Um, people are going to have to move. Uh, we can't stay in all the places we're in now. And unless we find a way to braid some of these disparate funding sources together and plan the places these people are going to wind up living, you're going to wind up with a, what's, what someone might call like a market-driven process, right, wherein all of the folks with the means to leave, leave, and you're left with a city like New Orleans was when Katrina hit, which was, you know, 50 years into a population decline and had lost most of its wealth. Um, and when a storm does inevitably hit, it makes the cost of recovery and the scale of recovery so much worse. Uh, Puerto Rico was going through the same thing when it was hit, right? It's an island of about three and a half million people uh, that lost about 300,000 people over the last 10 years. Uh, lots of Puerto Ricans are migrating to the United States, to the to the you know continental United States. Um, and it's hard to imagine that island's recovery going very well for exactly the same reason that New Orleans struggled after Katrina, uh, because it's been dealing with all of the problems that come from being a shrinking city or a depopulated city. And, you know, a generational storm uh, like Maria was there and Katrina was in New Orleans. This is a difficult topic to, to, to discuss, but you've mentioned the issue or the idea that some places just may not be rebuilt or that people may have to leave. When we're looking at other cities, such as Miami comes to mind, that many of these areas that are in the direct line of storms, that are directly uh, vulnerable, are actually high-income areas expensive properties. At what point do you imagine some of these decisions will be made? Will they be made proactively or will they be made, you know, <laughs> because there is no other choice and it becomes extremely obvious? Billy, what would you think about that? I mean, the optimist in me hopes that there's uh, a proactive decision-making on this and that we do plan out the inevitable out-migration of people to less risky cities or less risky territories. But I think we all know the answer is that's probably not going to happen, at least not anytime soon. Uh, there are the nature of our, you know, nation's govern governance model is that cities and states can kind of do whatever they want. And the federal government is there to provide money for some of those things. Um, it's not in the best interest of most of these state governments, at least on short term political election cycles to make a choice like that. It's hard to imagine the governor of Florida stumping for a re-election in Miami and saying, vote for me. I want you all to leave your city. That's a really hard proposition uh, to make. Um, so I think the, the likeliest outcome is that people wind up moving to these places that we could have planned that Ellen sort of outlined earlier in the conversation. We just won't have done the work we needed to do ahead of time to plan some of them. You could also, I mean, there's no easy way to think about solving the whole problem, but mm -hmm. there are a lot of ways to think about solving an example. So if you could create one powerful example of a city 
or even a good-sized town that maybe has low ground and high ground within its town borders, because that makes it easier, uh, actually migrating in a really intelligent way, um, still using the low ground for things that are good for everybody um, or that create a lot of economic resource. So there's a lot of places where you could say, all right, you know, we're going to create good high ground receiving areas for all of the homes that are not really going to be viable long into the future. And we're going to turn that area into a phenomenal park that's a shared resource, uh, you know, habitat, a carbon sequestration bank, uh, energy generation area, big, juicy public good that occupies that zone that can flood. All the things that we put in it are going to be strategically placed, and every time it floods, it'll be fine. But we all share that resource. You might move people to places that are now parkland, um, you know, or think about other, you know, Staten Island's a place where there's a lot of cemeteries on top of uh, the hills, and you could start to think about are there, you know, are there ways to take the high ground uh, and use it, change its land use patterns and take the low ground and change theirs to the good of all. And if you could pull it off in one place, just like Philadelphia was able to say, you know what, we don't need to build giant sewage treatment plants. We're going to treat every bit of water on the, in where it falls. We're going to try to build green infrastructure and avoid the, the big plant. You could, if you can demonstrate that you can do it and you can pull it off, whatever it is, um, you know, any of these kinds of resiliency strategies, then it starts to make its way into the conversation about things that are feasible. People, private sector starts to think, oh, government can pull off some tricky stuff. Um, They can actually come up with ways for us to participate in that uh, so that they don't do it all. We do it together. If we just had a few of those, you know, which is why I think prototyping is a big part of the conversation now. Um, You don't have to go to the hardest place. Like Miami is probably the hardest place I can think about, uh, you know, doing that. But you could go someplace easier. Um, like Tom's River, New Jersey, which has high ground and low ground. And, you know, the assets that you'd have to move aren't so expensive. And you just you sort of work from those examples into changing people's sense of what's possible. And what would the government's involvement be in that in terms of supporting that financially, potentially buying out properties? What's involved in that? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit on a couple of them right there, right, which is that there'd be money for some of the planning and design work to happen. There'd be money for the for the actual process stuff to happen. There'd be money for capital projects to happen. There'd be money for buyouts. Uh, and there'd be technical assistance. I mean, the trouble in a lot of these places, right, that aren't New York or Miami or even Houston uh, is that there isn't the same nexus of engineering and planning and design and uh, policy expertise And so providing resources to those places to be able to collect some of that knowledge and apply it to that particular place is one of the most important functions government can play in this whole problem. But that's sort of how they do it in Germany. um, There's a long history there of choosing a big problem um, and using – I'm going to not be able to say the German words well, um, but they call it the IBA. (laughs) Um, So – they convene intelligence from around the world, designers, engineers, uh, financiers, to solve a big problem. Uh, they bring everyone together. They build real projects in a single location. So they chose Hamburg uh, and then uh, the area beyond Hamburg as a place to explore um, how you do climate adaptation and uh, 
think about sea level rise, and then bring many, many smart people together to build some demonstration projects and then see how those demonstration projects go. So you could imagine choosing strategically some places where it isn't impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, they're good demonstration sites because of all of the good systems thinking tells us that, that a problem can be solved there. And uh, then you then you bring people together, you solve it. I, I think things like community ratings for insurance are also, you know, there's many different mechanisms for creating economic exchanges and opportunities for private investment. One of the things we loved about Hunts Point was that it was the intersection of some of the best community environmental leaders in the country and $5 billion worth of annual economy um, organized in markets. So businesses that have a kind of self-organization at a higher scale that makes it easier for them to do big things together. And if they could be working with government, then, uh, you know, it's not government alone figuring out how it's going to create all this investment. It's deciding how government facilitates, uh, you know, pulling off some things at a bigger scale. Let me ask you, too, one final question here. Um, When we're looking at public versus private funding, You've just given some 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 ideas on that. How does that apply to some of the very specific issues we have today, such as a rebuilding in Houston? Where does the public sector funding, I mean, the private sector funding, excuse me, come in? Because so much of the discussion is government funding for this, government funding is necessary. Again, what is the private sector's role, Billy? Uh, I mean, it's a tough question because oftentimes there isn't much of a private sector role in these recoveries, right? Um, in Houston in particular, a lot of the refineries and storage facilities that either spilled or were hit by Harvey uh, have also, you know, self-insured in a way. They've built levees or other structures around themselves to try and mitigate their own risk because their actuaries tell them, if you don't do this, you're in big trouble. Um, not environmental trouble or legal trouble that they'll lose too much money, right? Um, so I think one of the ways that the private sector can get involved is to stop, you know, for government to create space for them to stop thinking about that site only or facility only uh, mitigation and to either create a vehicle or just create, you know, intellectual space for them to come in uh, and be you know, a financial player in the recovery itself so that money isn't being steered only towards rebuilding. It's being steered into other things that can help reduce the impact or prevent the impact of the next storm. It tends not to happen that way in most places now, though. Are there any ideals that we should be going for? Any examples around the world that we should be looking to? I mean, there are infrastructure banks and there are other vehicles in other countries. There's been, you know, a hundred iterations of that floated around uh, in the U.S. over the last decade or so. Um, And if you look uh, at New York, even after 9-11... Um, the Lower Manhattan Redevelopment Authority sort of played that role, right? It was a public-private entity that uh, took some of the disaster relief money that came from that and also channeled some private investment money into redevelopment in Lower Manhattan. Uh, It didn't work out very well for folks who already lived there pre-9-11. A lot of them got pushed out, especially if you go to Chinatown. Um, But that kind of a vehicle, a special special district essentially, uh, can be the kind of thing that channels those different sources of funding uh, and brings them to bear on the kinds of problems we've been talking about today. Guys, anything that I didn't think to ask that you think is important to raise? The way to communicate this to people. I mean, I, I think that 
what has been interesting about all of the storm conversations. Locally, you'll get a tremendous conversation after Sandy. We talked about it for several years. Um, Same will happen in Houston. Uh, There's going to be a ton of talk, but the talk is not really about how to a increase our belief that we can solve the problem and then to zero in on some projects that demonstrate strategies for doing that. It's about everything else. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, I I often point people to this plan called Water Plan 2030 um, for the city of Rotterdam because it's just a beautiful piece of communication. And it it explains that, you know, it's not that the technology is not known. It's that the coordination challenges are huge. The transaction costs are big. and um, But it's not that we don't know how to solve these problems. Everyone knows how to solve the energy, uh, you know, resilience problems that we have. It's about communicating to people that it's necessary. Uh, it's expensive. Um, but if you don't do it, you are going to have tremendous downstream costs uh, in time. And if you do do it, you have the chance of creating, uh, you know, powerful energy for economic development for that city or that place. And so in some ways, I think that, you know, what you're doing uh, with the podcast, um, what we sh- what we ought to be doing in the university, what everyone who wants to work on climate adaptation should be doing is thinking about the communication dynamics and how we can increase people's confidence that the problem can be solved. That's a great place to end it, I think. Sounds good to me. <laughs> All right, well, Ellen and Billy, thanks for appearing on the podcast. Thanks Thank for having us. Thank you very much. Today's guests have been Ellen Nysis, Executive Director of Penn Praxis, and Billy Fleming, Research Coordinator for the Ian L. McCarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Design. You can learn more about events, research, and the latest news from the Climate Center by following our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 